On this episode of Ice Analytics, we're gonna be talking about the trade deadline. Historically, how much has it really mattered? And what were the big moves this year? Joining me on Stat Chat is Renaissance man, Joel Nelson. We're gonna be talking about how the NHL trade deadline is different from the other major sports leagues. This is Ice Analytics, proudly part of the Hockey Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 10 of Ice Analytics. I am your host, Matthew Arp. We got a big episode for you this week all about the trade deadline. But before we get into that, I just want to thank you for tuning in. I want to thank you for your reviews and your comments and ratings and whatnot. If you haven't reviewed and rated the show, head on over to iTunes or Spotify or whatever you use. Please subscribe. Bang the five-star button. Really appreciate the support. Also, I've got a bit of a sneak peek of a contest that's going to be right around the corner. I'll have more details for you next week and keep an eye on the Twitter at Ice Analytics. But the gist of it is our partners over at Tankathon and Cool Hockey are going to be doing a uh, NHL draft lottery contest to predict the order of the draft lottery. So head on over to tankathon.com slash NHL and hone your skills. Start to put together what you think the top 15 order of the draft lottery is going to be more details to come on this week's episode we got a lot to talk about with the trade deadline this is going to be an action-packed episode first up on number crunch i'm going to be looking at nhl trade deadline from a historical context why don't we see a lot of big names moving at the trade deadline like we do in the off season what teams have made big splashes at the deadline in the past because there have been a few and some of these names may surprise you then on Stat Chat, I'm going to be joined by Joel Nelson, future Supreme Court Justice nominee. He's going to give me his thoughts on how the NBA trade deadline is different from the NHL trade deadline. It's a natural comparison that a lot of people make because the NFL trade deadline is basically non-existent. And then after that, we're finally going to get into this year's trade deadline. There's a lot to cover. If it's not a lot of quality players that are moving. There's definitely a lot of quantity of players moving. You can suss out which teams are swinging for the fences, which teams are building long-term through the trade deadline, and which teams are selling hard and building for the draft and for their future. On this edition of Number Crunch, I'm going to be exploring the trade deadline in general And asking the following questions. Which superstar players have been involved in a deadline deal in the past? Does it really matter if you're active at the deadline? And what have the recent cup finalists done? You know, the NHL trade deadline gets a bit of a bad rap because we don't often see like a big blockbuster deal that happens. But they have happened in the past. You know, we go back to 1991. Ron Francis was traded from the Hartford Whalers to the Pittsburgh Penguins. And Ron Francis was like a lifelong Hartford guy. For him to get traded, that was was pretty crazy. But this worked out for the Pens, who not only won the Stanley Cup in 1991, but then repeated and won it in 1992. Another crazy deadline deal. Rookie Brett Hall traded from the Calgary Flames to the St. Louis Blues in 1998. And the Flames won the Cup the following year. And we all know how that worked out for Brett Hall. So that's a hard one to evaluate because if it's about cups, yeah, Calgary got one. But how many more would they have had if they would have kept Brett Hall? Hard to say. 
Chris Chelios in 1999 was traded from the Chicago Blackhawks to the Detroit Red Wings, a team that he never wanted to go to in the first place. But uh, it worked out pretty good for Chelios, who ended up winning two cups with Detroit. And for Chicago, it was pretty disappointing until they drafted Taves and Kane, you know, a good seven, eight years later. What about in 2002? Langenbrunner and Neudeich got moved from Dallas to Jersey for Arnott and McKay. You know, the Devils ended up winning the Cup in 2003, and both those guys were a pretty big part of it. Well, those were kind of the biggest trades we've seen over, God, I mean, the last 25 years with big names that ended up, some of which ended up going to the Hall of Fame. There's been some lesser-known players relative to some of these other names. How about Marty St. Louis getting moved to the Rangers in 2014? Or Kevin Shattenkirk getting moved to the Caps in 2017? Ryan McDonough getting moved to the Lightning in 2018? Yeah, I mean, there's been some bigger names that have moved at the deadline. But for the past, like, 15 or so years, the trade deadline has been all sizzle and no steak. Occasionally, you'll get to see a star player be dealt with an expiring contract to be a rental player for a contending team. But the price is pretty high for these players, and GMs are more risk-averse than ever. We see guys walk all the time at the end of an expiring contract when they could have been and probably should have been traded, but GMs and owners are hoping to retain their services and hold on to them. This brings us to our next question. What about the Stanley Cup finalists? How have they fared at the trade deadline? What have they done to make their teams better? Well, let's go back and look at the past five years, starting in 2015, and move to the present and look at the Stanley Cup finalists and see what moves they made at the deadline. Chicago in 2015 was the most active team of the past five years. This team gave up a first and two second rounders, and they ended up getting Vermette and Timonen in two separate deals. On the flip side, though, Tampa Bay Lightning, the other team that went to the Stanley Cup, didn't do anything real. I mean, they had a one little trade around the deadline. They gave up some future considerations, but they didn't do anything at the deadline in 2015, which is kind of surprising. In 2016, we saw the Penguins trade a third-round pick for Justin Schultz, and we saw San Jose trade for Polak, Spalling, Reimer, Morin. All those guys they got for a, a third and two seconds. In 2017, we saw Pittsburgh trade for Hainsey and give up a second-round pick. And Nashville that year traded for Vert Findler, giving up a fourth. In 2018, Washington traded essentially a second-rounder for Jensen and a third-rounder for Hagelin. Vegas tried to make a big splash in 2018, trading a first, a second, and a third for Tatar, who ended up being a 20-game rental. And last but not least, last year... St. Louis traded for Michael Delzato, giving up a sixth-round pick, and Boston traded a second-rounder for Johansson and a fourth-rounder and Donato for Charlie Coyle, neither of which had a huge impact. And if we just stay with last year for a second, there were a lot of deals that involved higher draft picks than what Boston and St. Louis gave up. Don't forget, Kevin Hayes went to the Jets as a rental for a first-round pick. Montour, who is a free agent after this year, was traded for a first. Dezingle went to Columbus as a rental for two second rounders. And Mark Stone, who went to Vegas as a rental before he got paid, went for a couple prospects and a second rounder. How'd it work out for those teams? The teams that gave up high draft capital didn't do so hot in the playoffs, 
None of these teams really capitalized on the rental players. Vegas was the only one who was able to turn that rental player into a long-term contract and didn't get really give up a whole lot in the process. And if we go back the past five years, Chicago is really the only team that burned their boats, went all in at the deadline, and it actually worked. The rest of these finals teams made lower-risk moves, and it seemed to work out well for them because it addressed their needs without sacrificing major draft capital in the process. So why make a deal in the first place? Why give up a first-round pick? Why give up a high second-round pick for a player that may end up only being a rental? Well, we have the luxury of hindsight, being able to go back and look at some of these deals, evaluate them after we see how the teams performed. You don't know. In a high-parity league like the NHL, one of these deals could have worked out. Kevin Hayes of the Jets could have worked out. Columbus did beat Tampa Bay in the first round with the Zingle. Vegas should have gone to the finals last year. Don't even get me started on that five-minute major, but... It still worked out for Vegas. They got a player for a second rounder and a couple prospects that they were able to lock in long term. That wasn't the case for Columbus. That wasn't the case for the Jets. And we'll see what happens with Montour this offseason. But addressing your needs at the deadline is a smart move. I would only caution that it has a lot to do with fit. It has a lot to do with filling your needs. And it has a lot more to do with how good your draft prospect pipeline is, how good your farm system is. Because for some of these teams that don't have a great farm system that are giving up first and second rounders every single year, it will eventually catch up to you. And for other teams that are able to restock the cupboard, for a team like Vegas, who had a million draft picks from their expansion draft, it was a lower risk move. All that being said, don't be disappointed if your team doesn't go out at the deadline and acquire some awesome rental player whose name is being floated around. Because honestly, the cost may be too high. And if it doesn't work out and you can't sign them long-term or if you're not interested in signing them long-term, it could end up blowing up in your face years down the road. All right, well, on that note, drum roll, please. Got a very exciting guest coming up who's going to drop some knowledge on you about the NHL trade deadline in relationship to other major sports leagues. What are they doing? Why do other trade deadlines feel a lot more exciting? All right, I'm joined on this edition of Stat Chat by Renaissance man Joel Nelson, environmental legal scholar, sports handicapper, former podcaster, future Supreme Court justice. You can find him on Twitter at Joel E. Beans with a Z. Welcome to the show. Old friend, it's good to talk to you again. I think two of those descriptions are true. The rest, I, I, you know, I don't know if that's accurate, but I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> are you just going to let the audience guess which two? Yeah, I'm not going to – You Supreme Court's probably one of the true ones, but uh, other than that, it's up for you guys to decide. <laughs> well, how are you doing today? I'm wonderful. You posed me with some interesting questions, so I've been thinking a lot about trade deadline, kind of why teams do what they do, and uh, I'm excited to talk to you about it. Awesome, man. Well, as you know, I mean, the trade deadline was this past week, and – a lot of other sports leagues have had, you know, more interesting trade deadlines, let's say. Um, we know the NHL has had some crazy off-season deals. I mean, Gretzky got traded, which is pretty insane, the best player at the time. But the NFL and NHL seem to have more relatively tame trade deadlines, although we can talk about Mika Fitzpatrick if you want, compared to the NBA. Why do you think the NBA trade deadline is much more of a spectacle compared to the other leagues, in particular the NHL? 
Yeah, and I think you're you're right to say, you know, trade deadline because the summer is kind of a, a different the offseason is kind of a different beast. But uh yeah, I think I think there's two parts to the to the NBA trade deadline that makes it kind of crazy. And, you know, I think the first part is structural. I just the way the NBA is set up and the way contracts are set up, now now most contracts top out at four or five years and you're paying upwards of $40 million a year for a guy. Now there is, you know, it's not a hard cap. There is a luxury tax, but I think a lot of teams at a certain point decide that they want to get under the tax, that there's no reason to pay the tax if they're not going to win it all. So I think there's kind of some, some motivations that stem from the CBA. We see a lot of the haves trying to make a move to put them over the top and they have a, a, a team that's tanking or that doesn't have very good prospects going forward that will oblige them by, you know, giving them that one piece, moving on from that one piece and um, trying to plan for the future. So I think there's a lot of willing dance parties in the NBA that uh, facilitate these trades. I will say this though, this last trade deadline last year, 2019 trade deadline was a lot crazier than this year. This, this trade deadline for the NBA was kind of tame and that just might be, you know, a one year outlier, but I was kind of surprised at the deals that were talked about. And that can be my second, my second point. There's sort of a cultural component and really I, this is purely anecdotal, but I'm immersed in Twitter in general, probably too much. It's probably why I uh, don't sleep at night. Uh, but also also NBA Twitter. And I think the cultural piece is there's just so much chatter. There's just so much access in the NBA. And I, and I genuinely think that um, front office people in the NBA pay attention to it, which you might think is crazy. And it's probably not the best way to run a business. But NBA teams will oblige a trade request for a, a one-away player. And I was looking at, you know, just kind of doing some research. And basically the only... NHL trade that I can remember in the past or, or trade request was Nylander and he got destroyed. Everybody kind of fans, media kind of destroyed him and he eventually didn't get traded. When you juxtapose that with a, with a young star in the NBA, like Anthony Davis, who signed a new contract, still had two years on his deal and, you know, essentially did not want to play for new Orleans anymore and had a reason to kind of hook up with LeBron in LA. And they, they gave him that trade. I mean, he, he was maligned and, and took a lot of heat from new Orleans fans, but I think by and large, the public kind of sympathizes with NBA players who want to get away. But I'll also say another part of that, uh, that cultural piece. And I kind of touched on this is I think there's a lot of chatter. I think if we go by the chatter, we would think that the NBA trade deadline is insane. But this year's a great example. There was tons of talks. There was tons of rumors of, of guys getting moved. There's, you know, the Sixers, Boston, some of these fringe contenders were talked about as making a, a big deal for a piece they needed. And a lot of that didn't come to fruition. And uh, this year we saw a lot of trades that were really complementary pieces that moved and not necessarily these these blockbuster trades that you would think from the media coverage that we were going to get. Hey, that makes sense to me, man. I, I buy that. I think, uh, yeah, structurally and culturally. But going back to the structural thing for a second, if you're looking at the NFL compared to the other leagues, I would argue that basketball has a lot more in common with hockey, especially in terms of the players. You know, football is a coach's league. It's a schematic league. It's a quarterback league. It's kind of an X and O's league. Hockey and hoops feels 
like a little bit more um, improvisational where it's, uh, you know, you have players that, uh, you know, creativity between players, like you mentioned Anthony Davis and, and LeBron. And is that a fair assessment? Do you think that's why we don't see a lot of big NFL trades at the deadline? I mean, I feel like the NFL trade deadline is horrible every year, but we should see more trades with hockey, right? I mean, if you have a great player, schematically, it doesn't matter as much, right? I think that's a, a real good assessment and a good kind of distinction between the sports. I think that the, the free-flowing nature of those sports kind of lend towards more guys that can that have a chemistry that kind of work together. Um, you don't necessarily – where the NFL, you trade for a piece. You, you need an offensive lineman. So not only do you need a specific player, you need to find another team that's willing to part with that specific player, and you need to have the piece they want. So there's just so many more variables that come into play when you're trying to, when you're trying to make a deal. With the NBA, most teams are really going for uh, length, long wings, defending wings, and, and, and shooting. So if you're tall and long, you could, you could fit in. And, you know, an example of this is Ben Simmons, who could defend all five positions, who is essentially a point forward, sometimes plays point center. And he's long and lengthy. And, you know, you try to build a team that has size and that kind of – maybe they're, they're complementary parts in the sense of they play well together, they have good chemistry – but it's not as much we need a right tackle, so we need to find a team that has a right tackle available to us. Two caveats to that. I, I do think that um, hockey is similar in that sense, although there is maybe more – the goaltender is kind of the, the bridge between NFL and NBA where there is a position-specific need that can be filled. If you need goaltending – then you're gonna you're probably gonna have to make a move for a goaltender and find that specific trading partner. The other caveat is the NFL is becoming a, a league that trades more because I think they're the 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 NFL is kind of usually behind the power curve as far as kind of innovations and market inefficiencies. But I think the NFL is starting to realize that draft picks are such a crapshoot that it might be willing to dump some draft picks for a sure thing. The Khalil Mack trade, the Mari Cooper trade were trades that were maligned at the time. And I'll admit, I was someone who said, I can't believe you're trading picks for a guy that's already been in the league. But I think the logic's kind of bore out that you can muff a trade pick. You can muff uh, a draft pick. But, you know, if you have the confidence that Cleo Mack is going to be a piece that you can kind of build your defensive around for some years, you know, we've seen these teams willing to dump picks to 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 get a, a high impact player and and maybe that's an outlier those are two instances of of guys that were successful and have continued to be successful but i have read and heard and you know just kind of being immersed in the nfl thing uh you know picks are becoming more and more devalued in the nfl as well that makes a lot of sense and honestly when you think about it at least my perception of it is is the nba teams at least contending teams seem to be throwing away picks like it's nothing. I mean, mm. especially you look at either trade deadline or even the offseason, the NBA, you know, there's teams that just don't have draft picks or, you know, there's only two rounds in the draft, unlike yeah. hockey and, and football, you know, so you only have two rounds worth of picks. You only have two picks each draft. There's teams that just trade them both away. I mean, we've seen Golden State do it in, in the past. We've seen Cleveland do it in the past when they were contending. With only two rounds, wouldn't those picks become more valuable? Whereas like in hockey or in the, in the NFL, because there's multiple rounds, you, you might get a steal late in the draft. It's, it's interesting. And I, I really thought about this because it's a really good question. And, and the first thing, the, the, the dichotomy between the NHL 
and the NBA and NFL is slightly different, but I think you can kind of uh, extend the logic. The the NBA doesn't have a robust minor league. There there is the D league and there is or the G league now. There is a, a an ability to kind of stash guys away and have guys on two two way contracts and control guys either in Europe or in the in, in the G league. But I think the the robust nature of the NHL's minor league system kind of allows for you to make perspective picks and kind of develop guys where a 12th guy on an NBA bench, he's, he's not going to produce for you. Really what you're trying to do is find a guy that's going to be an instant impact. Um, a high draft pick is going to have a lot of money. They're going to be a large piece of the salary cap. So you really want instant impact. You know, I think the perspective picks, we, we do see it. We see guys in the second round. We see guys getting drafted late every year. And we, and we look back and we say, wow, I can't believe this guy fell so far. But I, I don't think there's as much leeway for guys to kind of develop and kind of come into their own with the NBA. So I think a lot of NBA teams see a second-round pick as the, the, the actual player will ever be an impact for them. So I think they, they devalue those picks. The way I extend it with the NFL is I think college football is the NFL's minor league because they force the players to play at least three years. So even though the NFL doesn't have a minor league per se, they have practice squad players and their, and their, their rosters have, you know, they have the 53. So they have enough room to have guys on their roster that don't necessarily produce or aren't expected to produce right now. Plus, I think you really know what you're getting in a guy after you've seen him for three or four years. So I think that's why you will still find some gems in the third round or fourth or fifth round, really. And I also think because it's so position specific, when you're building out a depth chart in the NFL, you can say, I need a backup guard that can play right or left guard that maybe I don't expect him to play, but I can get him in the fourth round. And if one of our guards goes down, this guy will be serviceable where in the NBA, the difference between your best players and their replacements are so stark that if you lose a superstar, you're not going to be able to fill in a serviceable guy around him and kind of tailor your game plan, hiding his weaknesses and accentuating his strengths. I know that they do protected lottery picks in the NBA, yes. but we still see teams trading away. We, we do see teams trading lottery picks from, you know, occasionally for, for a big name. Whereas in the NHL, at least this past trade deadline and, and past few, I feel like any team that is, out of lottery contention, like any playoff team that's, that's trading their first round pick, they know it's not going to be a lottery pick or it's a very high likelihood it's not going to be a lottery pick. Whereas I feel like NBA teams are a little bit more willing to give those lottery picks up. Especially this year. And, and, and this is where it varies a lot after this draft. The, 20, the 2021 draft, the NBA is going to start allowing high school players to directly enter the league again. I just think there's so much variation and I, from year to year and from kind of assessment to assessment that this year there's maybe six to seven guys that are going to be impact players. There's just not a lot of depth in these drafts and there's not a lot of perceived depth in these drafts. Of course, we can look back five years ago from a, a draft five years ago and say, oh, wow, that, that draft was really deep. That doesn't mean at the time that the, 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 the kind of prevailing wisdom was that it was a, a deep draft this year. I mean, there, there really hasn't been, there isn't a lot of guys that have popped um, teams are excited about. I mean, someone like Cole Anthony um, has underachieved this season. Uh, James Wiseman, a, a Memphis player was ineligible. So there's not a lot of assurance that these guys are going to be good in the first place. And beyond that, 
there's not a lot of assurance that beyond the top three, four picks, which are teams that are discernibly bad and are not going to trade those picks. And, you know, maybe that goes back to NBA GMs whiffing on picks and not being the best at picking. Maybe it is a, a question of depth. Another thing I'll add is that the way the trades are generally structured is if you're a, a, a non-contender that's taking on a team's contract that they're trying to dump, mm-hmm. then you're going to get draft picks too. And the reason for that is a draft pick more than a player is a cost control to fill out your salary cap. So if you get a second round pick, you're essentially getting a a roster spot that's locked in at $2 million. So you take that large contract because you're also getting essentially another contract that's small and you can average those two contracts out for your, for your salary cap. That's why you see a lot of these second round picks move because really what they are are chips to kind of get cost controlled roster spots filled. A contender that trades for a piece they need and they'll, they'll give up goods. They'll give up a, a young talent or a, a, a good pick. But you also see these trades where it's a team that is trying to dump salary. Part of that deal is going to be that they throw some marginal second round picks that really give the team flexibility for taking on that huge contract. Yeah. I mean, I, and I think, I know it's not exactly the same in the NHL, but I mean, it's, it's very similar when it comes to your entry-level contract, you know, you, you know, that NHL players are signing where, you know, you got three years that it's like between seven fifty and, you know, 900,000 for their first three years annually. Well, and I think, and, and this is something I wanted to ask you because NBA contracts are four or five year contracts where, uh, and, and that's kind of collectively bargained. That's, that's kind of how, how things are done. It's how they have to be done. And I wonder if because you can have guys cost controlled for long in the NHL, I wonder if that kind of goes into it too, because you're kind of stretching out these payments over a longer period of time. You control a guy for a long, the Pelicans knew that they were going to have to offer Anthony Davis $45 million in two years. So the, the, the kind of short length of that contract means that when you sign a guy, the clock is already ticking on making use of him or moving on from him and getting some kind of value for him. Now, speaking of draft picks and the trade deadline, I know we see this in other sports as well, but there's always this handful of NHL teams or NBA teams or NFL teams for that matter that flip multiple picks for a rental player. And I know hindsight is 2020. We've seen this in other sports. If it works out, you're a genius. If it doesn't work out, you're an idiot. But these types of moves rarely result in a cup. I feel like it's hard to pinpoint a team and say, this was a move that they made that led them to the promised land. And that's the whole point of making the deal. There's going to be a lot more teams disappointed in making that deal than teams that are, that are happy with making a deal, giving up future considerations. What, what are your thoughts generally on a team that sacrifices their future for a better chance at winning now? And, you know, last year's great example of this was Columbus, who swung for the fences and acquired a bunch of players, and they beat Tampa Bay in the first round. That's as far as they went. It is a high parity league. This does happen. The Tampa Bay, the historic Tampa Bay Lightning last year, who tied the uh, single season record with the number of points, got swept in the first round yeah. by a Columbus team that went all in at the deadline, but they didn't get a cup. So what, do you, what are your thoughts on that? I, I mean, I think it's interesting because I think you, you kind of characterize it correctly i think that you you not only are you going all in but you're kind of sending a a message to the league you're going all in so you really are opening yourself up to scrutiny and i think that it's kind of like a risk tolerance 
thing. I think that, and this goes back to sort of the cultural piece, I guess. I think that in the NBA, fan bases and media, they'll give you credit for effort. You know, we have avant-garde uh, GMs like Daryl Morey down in Houston, who this year just did something that I, I really don't remember happening in a long time, which is essentially he made a trade to change the, the style his team played. And whether this is a true market inefficiency or not, we will see. But essentially he traded a seven footer in Clint Capella and it was a massive 14 trade, but essentially he traded Clint Capella to get Robert Covington, who's a, you know, six, seven rangy shooter defender, you know, so they're taught their center now is six, seven. So that's something that is just radical. That's just a radical move. And I, I think he can, he's afforded that opportunity because a, I think people will, I, I don't think that that's going to be a move that puts them over the top. But I think people will give them credit for trying their their opponents, you know, the Lakers who have tons of size or some of the other teams, that the, the Eastern teams, um, you know, the Bucs, the Sixers, Boston. They basically said they can't win the way they are constructed now. So let's at least try something else. And I think he'll get credit for that. I also think that a lot of teams are pressured into making these moves, which goes back to the whole they're tuned in to maybe social media and media a little bit too much because you're right. It, a lot of the moves that we see that put a team over the top, and I use air quotes, last year it was Toronto did trade for Marcus Gasol at the deadline. Now, can you say, oh, that move put him over the top? I don't, I don't know if you can necessarily say that. I mean, Kawhi Leonard is probably the best playoff basketball player, the clutchest player in the NBA right now. Wait, wait, when did Max Kellerman come on the show? <laughs> Hey, you know, I, I got to give respect where respect due. You know, he killed my Sixers. You know, I, I would probably argue that, no, uh, the Saul trade did not, you know, put him over the top. But even this year, we saw um, the Clippers made a move for uh, Marcus Morris. And I think those marginal pieces on teams that are really, really good are much more, they're not sexy, but I think they're much more, they bear much more fruit. I just think it's hard to kind of prove that. And I think the other part of it is there's a lot of GMs that are floundering and they can go back to their fans or their ownership groups and, and kind of say, hey, you know, at least we tried. I agree with uh, the premise of your, of your question, which is unless you're almost sure that, that you're going to get to a conference championship or the finals, I wouldn't make a huge trade for, for a one-year rental. You really are kind of leaving it out there when you mortgage your future on a guy for one season. You are opening yourself up to criticism. If you give up a first-round pick, even if it's like a mid-round first-round pick for a player that's going to play 20 games and the playoffs for you, and you don't win at all, I think you probably deserve some criticism for giving up that high of draft capital if you don't re-sign the player. If you re-sign the player, it's a totally different story. But yeah. if they walk, what did you what did you actually accomplish with that? And I know some of that is hindsight, but I think it really comes down to like how valuable that pick is because we know that you know late first round picks and mid second round picks are basically valued about the same so i mean there's a huge drop off like you said you start getting past that like 15 mark and it just it just almost flatlines the rest of the draft so if you're giving up first rounders for a play that's going to play 20 games and the playoffs that, that just seems like a really steep price well it's funny too because it's it's sort of a perspective thing. Uh you know, I wrote a note to myself when I was thinking about this and the NHL and the NBA have they have I I might get in trouble for saying this, but I think they have more tuned in uh intelligent fans. I and and this is, you know, this is not a knock on the NFL. It's actually a function of them being 
kind of like this juggernaut, especially in the U.S., where they they bring in those casual fans. And I think any league would love to say, yeah, we'll take every – we don't care whether you understand the salary cap or not. But I think that NBA and NHL fans kind of buy in to to the strategic visions of their teams. So I think in the NBA or the NHL, if a team is saying, we're going to tank, we're rebuilding, we're planning for the future, we're trading this guy you really like now because we're getting picks and we're getting cap flexibility for free agency in two years, NBA fans and NHL fans say, fair enough, okay, well, and you know, I'm a Philly guy, I'm a Sixers guy, well, you know, I'm a process guy. We went through 10 and 72 seasons, you know, season, just miserable seasons, and we... <laughs> Uh, uh, Sixers fans rallied around that based on this strategic plan. So I, I strongly doubt you're ever going to hear Packers fans go, man, I really love our five-year strategic plan. But NHL team, NHL fans, NHL media, NBA media, I think that they're much more tuned into the background strategy that informs these moves. What might be different is what the, like I said earlier, the the risk tolerance, or I think NBA fans are more like, yeah, we like your your strategic plan, but like, how how are we going to win? What are you going to do? Like, make me come to this game. Where I think NHL fans understand, like, yeah, we we like this player, but you know, we don't have a real chance this season. The the league, there is a lot of variability. There is a lot of parity, but. I think you you can sell patience in the NHL more than you can sell patience in the NBA. Um, unless you have a strategy where you're explicitly saying, like, we're tanking, we we are sucking on purpose, and then I think fans will embrace the suck uh, as as we did in Philadelphia for so many years. If there's anything that, that Philly has in common with Cleveland is that we embrace the suck, too, <laughs> for the Browns. I mean, they were just happy to have a parade. No, and, and, and the Browns are – exploring the market inefficiency and and they're going to be the test case for whether it works in the NFL or not. You know, they did it in a different way. Uh, you know, they did, you know, make some, they have made trades and they have made some moves, but they've taken a, a purely analytical approach and they've been willing to, to, to have some tough times, you know, Sashi died for us <laughs> to maybe, maybe have a chance at, being a well i mean what would you want you'd want to make the playoffs right so yeah i mean something, that, something you know the bar is pretty low you just want to hit that over bet one one of these years <laughs> the season total true story bro i'm not going to take up any more of your time i just uh want to afford you the opportunity to uh promote or plug any of your projects or your future supreme court campaign <laughs> uh you know shout outs the floor is yours man I mean, I don't have a lot uh, going on, like you said. I mean, anybody that wants to follow me on Twitter, it's Joel, the letter E, and then Beans with a Z. And you can, I always love to talk uh, with people. It's a lot of Philadelphia 76ers and cryptic tweets about how I'm worried about the future of our earth. So I don't know if it's a, the most fun hang. I'm a huge fan of the Ice Analytics podcast, so I'll shout that out. That's my favorite podcast right now. <laughs> Doc, you're doing good. But no, maybe maybe have me on again. Maybe we could talk some uh, gambling for the playoffs. Other than that, uh, yeah, just, I don't know, cross your fingers for that Supreme Court nomination here in about 25 years. Yeah, well, yeah, maybe, maybe we'll get that court packing after all. <laughs> Sounds great, man. Thanks for hopping on and uh, appreciate your thoughts. All right, let's bring this thing full circle. Talk about this Monday's trade deadline four days ago. 
NHL trade deadline. What happened? Which teams are impacted? I'm not going to go through every single trade because who's got that kind of time, but I'm going to outline a few trades that I thought were really good and savvy moves. But first, what did we learn from this year's deadline? There is an arms race in the East, especially the Metro. I mean, listen to this. Caps, go and get Kovalchuk and Dylan. You get the Pens who got Marlowe, Zucker, Sherry, and Rodriguez. Carolina made a bunch of moves on the trade deadline, getting Trocek, Votnin, and the Islanders going out and acquiring Pajot, signing him to an extension, and Green. The Atlantic was meh. We did see Boston go and get Kase and Richie, and we saw Tampa Bay Lightning go and get Coleman, but uh, there, were, there were some moves elsewhere, but the Metro feels like this year's battleground. I guess that's to be expected. A lot of real contenders in the Metro right now, Caps, Pens, Hurricanes, Islanders, any of those teams could end up going to the Stanley Cup. You're going to have to go through Boston or Tampa Bay, and that, that's going to be tough, but any of those teams can make the Stanley Cup. And the teams that were sellers at the deadline, not too surprising. Montreal, Detroit, Ottawa, LA, Florida. Yeah, this same Florida team that's two points out of a playoff spot that uh, decided to move on from Trocek, their number two center. Trying to make sense of that. I mean, this just feels like an inside troll job of uh, Toronto. You know, let Toronto sneak in on that second wild card. Then they get to deal with Boston or Tampa Bay in the first round, even as a wild card. That, that'd just be torture. You get rid of Sherry and Rodriguez. Okay, that that's fine. That makes sense. In exchange for Kuhan, who's pretty good. But then you trade for Wade Simmons. I don't know. I can't make a what but Buffalo, are you drunk? No, actually, it's they are not the craziest team in the NHL. They're not even the craziest team in New York. Because the Rangers, I don't know if you heard, went from rebuilding to re-signing players long term. When they did that Kreider extension... I mean, he's a gifted offensive scorer, but okay. I didn't realize that we were already we were already there, but uh, I guess we are. So good for them. Congratulations, New York Rangers. You're contenders now, I guess, or something. Big question for me at this point is what about the first round picks? Because as I talked to Joel about on the stat chat, first round picks are coveted, especially high first round picks. I'm going to get into a few of these deals more in depth when I talk about some of the best deals I think that went down, but... Boston, giving up their first rounder, should be a late first rounder. Not that valuable. You know, the Pens giving up their first rounder, not that valuable of a pick. The one that's really interesting, though, is the Islanders. Because the Pens at least protected themselves in the Zucker trade. If Pittsburgh misses the playoffs this year, Pittsburgh has an option to send next year's first rounder instead. What are the odds that the Pens are going to miss the playoffs two consecutive years? Which means... The odds of the Islanders getting a lottery pick from the Penguins is almost none. When Tampa Bay made the deal to send a first-round pick to the Devils for Coleman, they sent the Canucks first-round pick that they had. The Canucks do not make the playoffs this year. The first-rounder will actually transfer to a 2021 first-rounder instead, which is, again, protection. I mean, what are the odds that Vancouver is going to miss the playoffs two years in a row? Probably higher than the Pens, but they're ahead of schedule right now. And they're probably going to make the playoffs this year. But if not, you're protected. The Islanders trade, though, is very interesting. Because the first rounder that went from the Islanders to Ottawa for Jean-Gabriel Pajot is only a protected top three pick. So if the Islanders somehow slip out of the playoffs, that pick moves. This is an Ottawa team that already has multiple picks from the Carlson trade as well as their own high draft pick. 
So this is a team that could have three potential lottery picks this year. Wow. It's not like the Islanders are running away with anything right now. Let's be clear. At the time of this recording, the Islanders have three points advantage on their wildcard spot. If they lose just a little bit of ground down the final stretch run, that pick could potentially turn into a lottery pick. Another lottery pick for the Senators. That's pretty scary, and that's uh, full anarchy mode right there. If you want to see the world burn, root against the Islanders the rest of this year. Enough of the big picture stuff. I want to get into a couple big trades that were made that I think are not only good trades, but also good fits. And I'm not even going to bother trying to evaluate trades in terms of equity when it comes to draft picks. Well, why not? Everybody else does it. You turn on TSN, you, you listen to a podcast, and, and just like Joel said, you know, any deal that's made, oh, it was a good deal. You know, I feel like that's the mentality is that uh, if your team does it, it must be a good deal. If your rival does it, it's a bad deal. You know, it's just, it's low-hanging fruit. I'm not even going to bother with this stuff. How do you evaluate a trade if it's fair if you only have one known quantity? You don't. And that's why it's a waste of time. I do think you can actually evaluate these trades based on team fit, what these players are bringing to the table, and the length of their contracts. And that's why I think it's really important to take into consideration contract status. Because some of these players are pure rentals. And as you know from the stat chat, I am not for giving up a high draft pick for a player that's going to play 20 games for you. And you know what? Thankfully, no teams really did. Uh, most of these rental players, we're talking third round picks or later. There was a couple that, that uh, garnered second round picks. But I'm okay with that. What I'm not okay with is the first round pick for a rental with no possibility of re-signing. That, that to me is the problem. So thankfully, nobody made that mistake this year. There are a couple teams that are pretty close to that line. First up, let's start with a couple of non-rental players that I think are going to be great fits. Blake Coleman going to the Tampa Bay Lightning for Nathan Foote and a first-round pick that I already mentioned is the Canucks first-round pick and does have some lottery protections built in this year. Blake Coleman's a guy you've never heard of until about a week ago. Played four years at the University of Miami of Ohio before signing an entry-level contract with the Devils. He's currently in his third full season in the NHL after finishing with 25 and 36 points in his first two seasons. He's already up to 31 points on the year, with 21 of those being goals. His even strength numbers are insane. He's averaging 1.1 goals per 60 minutes in terms of expected goals above replacement from Evolving Hockey, which is essentially a metric that looks at the number of goals he should score above a replacement player. He's in the 79th and 81st percentile in offensive and defensive at even strength, respectively. And here's the kicker. He's amazing on the penalty kill as well. Oh, and he's on a reasonable $1.8 million contract next year. After paying Kucherov, Stammer, Point, Palat, Gord, Johnson, and Hedman over $5 million a year, and Vasilevsky's $6 million raise kicks in next year, Coleman is a perfect fit for their cap situation and what I think we can consider a window that is closing. This is a great fit. Tampa Bay is in a great position to make a run this year and next year before potentially losing him. Next up is the other big non-rental player that was traded Oh, you know, a week before the actual trade deadline. And that's Jason Zucker from the Minnesota Wild who went to the Penguins for Addison, a defensive prospect, Galchenyuk, which is a salary dump and a first round pick, which is probably going to be near the bottom of the first round. 
Zucker's name's always floated around the trade deadline. It finally happened. He's two years removed from his best statistical season when he finished with 64 points. The Pens buy low this year while unloading the Galchenyuk experiment that went wrong. Zucker is producing in the top 25 expected percentile in, in GAR, goals above average, in both offense and defense the past three seasons. He also has a scoring touch. He's shooting well above average, 7% the past few seasons. And he has three more years on his contract at a very reasonable $5.5 million and is only 27 years old. When Gunsel comes back into the mix, this team's top six is going to be one of the best in the league. And as long as Crosby and Malkin are producing, the window's not going to be closing anytime soon. You get this guy through his the rest of his prime till he's 30 years old, reasonable contract, great fit for them. The other non-rental deal that was done that I think is phenomenal is the Andre Kasse deal to Boston from Anaheim. This is a player I've been a huge advocate for the past few seasons. He's been sheltered by the number of minutes that he's been playing, but his production is undeniable. I'm a little surprised that Anaheim dumped him now while his stock is at some of his lowest. The evolving hockey expected goals model has him above 50%. His Corsi and Fenwick are both above 50%, but his actual goals for is below. It's about 48%. The more work he gets, the bigger the sample size becomes. His on-ice production should improve. And going to Boston and rounding out presumably their top six is great, especially for a first-round pick that is probably going to be near the bottom of the first round. But on top of that, Boston also shed David Bacchus's contract. Sure, they had to retain a million and a half dollars, but they get Kase for $2.6 million for next year as well as this year, which is actually cheaper than if they would have just kept Bacchus because they're, they're paying Bacchus $6 million. They're paying Kase 2.6 and they're retaining 1.5. So what is that, like 4.1? They're saving a million nine next year off their cap and they gave up a late first rounder. That, you know, we've seen teams in the past have to give up a first rounder to get rid of a player like Bacchus. And that's it. Like you basically, you pay a first to just get rid of a bad contract. They got Kase in return, in addition to unloading a bad contract, saving a million point nine. Love the deal. I've got one more non-rental contract before I want to talk about my one rental contract that I think is is a really solid move. We got to talk about Trocheck. He moves from Florida to Carolina in exchange for Howla, Walmart, Prisky, some guy's name I can't pronounce. And, you know, four, four players, no picks involved in this deal, four players for Vincent Trocheck. So what is Carolina getting in Trocheck? Bonafide number two center. Pencil, like not, not even pencil, sharpie that in the lineup. Trocheck is a is a legit second line center. His offensive upside is for real. He's in the 78th percentile in even strength offense. His defense is more marginal, but on the power play, he's in the 91st percentile. Just don't play him on the PK. He's not very good. But he's been on the upswing the past few seasons, even though statistically his Point production has dropped the past few years. He's 26 years old. He's got three years remaining on his contract. So two more after this year, and he's making $4.75 million. I know if I was on NHL GM mode right now, I would make this deal 10 out of 10 times. Lock this guy in. He's your number two. Set it and forget it. He's the real deal. And you know what? Here's the kicker. He's been snake bitten this year at scoring. His scoring's down the past few seasons. But you know what? His assist numbers 
are through the roof. He's given you about one assist per 60 minutes at even strength. This Carolina team is already loaded at the top. They can outscore almost anybody. And then you throw Trocek into the mix. Yeah, this is a pretty good deal. I do want to talk about one rental player that I think has serious upside. Dylan DeMello traded from the Ottawa Senators to the Winnipeg Jets. It's been well documented that the Jets are only in the playoff conversation because of Hellebuck. The Jets had to make a move for a defenseman if they were going to take this year seriously at all. And they're really, they're on the bubble. They're on the bubble right now. They can miss, they can make, we don't know. And they didn't just acquire some warm body. DeMello has real value as a two-way right-handed defenseman, which, you know, right-handed defensemen are coveted in the NHL. And they desperately needed to replace Bufflin's production. This is his third team in three years. I know he hasn't gotten a lot of ice time in the past. He was buried in the third pair in San Jose. But I know when I did my money puck series over the summer last year and I was looking at the contract values of players and their GAR, their goals above replacement value, DeMello's name always came up. Because if you looked at his rates per minute or rates per 60, he was always off the charts in especially offense, but just in total production above replacement level. I hope Winnipeg finds a way to keep him, honestly, because he's a great value. And depending on how they handle the cap situation this offseason, he's estimated $4.5 million contract by Matt Cain. He could turn out to be in an amazing long-term replacement. But here's the thing. They gave up a third-round pick for this guy. Third-round pick. So it doesn't necessarily matter if they make or miss the playoffs this year. If you can convince DeMello to stick around and you throw him like four or five mil, and you can lock him in as like a second pair right-handed defenseman, that's what I love about this deal is there is the potential. You make him happy, lock him into an extension. Now you're set in your top four. And that's what I really like about this deal is it's not just purely a rental. Now, there's always the possibility they miss the playoffs. That pick in the third round is becomes better, and he walks. And that's the risk you run, but I got to think that you're thinking long-term with this guy. This was not just a pure rental situation. But either way, for a third-round pick, I mean, what do you really have to lose? And that's my top five. It's not in any order. It's not like a top five ranking or anything. Those are just like the five things that really stood out to me because, yeah, it's easy to sit here and just like pick apart every trade, but I really wanted to dig into some of these numbers. And to me, these are the five that kind of stood out. Be sure to check out next week's episode. I'm going to be tackling zone starts, which teams start more more often in the offensive zone, defensive zone, neutral zone. I'm going to be joined by Mark from the Vegas Hockey Podcast. We're going to be talking about Golden Knights and how they're blowing the league away in offensive zone starts. And remember, folks, drink and think responsibly. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Ice Analytics, your source for NHL stats and analysis hosted by the Hockey Podcast Network. Every team, everywhere. You can find me on Twitter at Ice Analytics, and you can find the show notes at www.statsenforcer.com. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to our feed and leave us a review.